0: This podcast brought to you by Hope 1032. The Big Picture, a Christian insight into the world of movies, television, and pop culture, with magazine editor Ben McKecken and scriptwriter Mark Hadley. A Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world.
1: How on earth are you? I'm Ben McKecken. And I'm his overly repetitive friend Mark Hadley Welcome to episode 136 of The Big Picture for the week beginning December 4 and that's right, Christmas is on the way and coming up on today's show
2: Speaking of Christmas, the
1: star offers us a new animated view of Jesus' birth through the eyes of talking animals Plus, Oscar winner Kate Winslet takes a ride on Wonder Wheel before Matt Damon shrinks to save the planet in downsizing
2: Shrinks to save the planet, that's right, we'll be talking about downsizing later in the show Matt Damon's coming up as you said so we've also got Kate Winslet and Talking Animals what more (laughs) could you want from an edition of the big picture, particularly as we head towards Christmas, which will get a, a set of steak knives. Yeah, they, they'll be they'll be heading your way in the mail real soon, real soon. People do still use the mail, don't they? The old fashioned. Oh yeah, because they get parcels. That parcels is order. the only
1: thing that's keeping the mail alive. Parcels
2: is the future. I'm um, speaking of the future that's arrived right now, Mark. Before we get on to talking animals and Kate Winslet and Matt Damon and all those kind of things, here's some other things of note that's happening in the world of movies at the moment. You talked about a movie that hit cinemas uh, last Thursday. You talked about. On the show last week, Wonder. If you missed Mark's glowing review of Wonder, go to the bigpicturewebsite.com. Wonder stars Owen Wilson and Julia Roberts as parents of a boy with a a facial facial disfiguration and the issues that he experiences with that disability. But the amazing thing about Wonder is it shows disability from a variety of perspectives, not just the person who experiences the disability themselves. Mark loved Wonder. I'm just speaking for you here at this point, Mark. Yes, indeed. Please, continue to speak for me.
1: (laughs) I am nodding loudly. If I'm understanding
2: you correctly, you really like to wonder, and that's at cinemas at the moment. Uh, On Blu-ray, DVD, and legitimate digital delivery services, (laughs) wherever you find those, American Made, it's a Tom Cruise film. It's based on a real-life guy who was a pilot in South American countries who flew for the CIA and... Was a drug smuggler for cartels. Mark, that sounds to me like risky business.
1: <laughs> it does, except that it's now cocaine instead of women of the night.
2: That's right. Uh, uh, for anyone who doesn't get that reference, Tom Cruise was in a film called Risky Business in the 80s, and I won't go any further into the plot of that movie because, Mark, that's enough of movies at the moment. What's happening on the small screen? Oh, boy, have I got the best news of the week.
1: Do you? I, I do indeed. This you Friday, I have. Here it is. Everybody sit down. Okay. And if you're sitting down, sit in your throne. <sighs> Okay, because this December 8, the return of Queen, uh, sorry, the return of the Queen in season 2 of The Crown. I'm so excited. I can't even get my sentences straight. This is Netflix's incredible historic drama that follows the royal family. And can I say season 1 was incredible and season 2 looks set to impress all the more. Claire Foy's back yet again. The essence of perfection in Elizabeth II. The
2: essence of perfection. She is amazing. My goodness, man, you are tripping over yourself by celebrating. The
1: Queen. If only I could wear crown. a tiara so well. Um, she's a woman <laughs> determined to serve despite personal crisis. She's caught between the barriers of personal and public life, while ever seeking to carry the weight of the crown with dignity and grace. And she does it so well. Basically, I'd vote for her if you voted for a queen. Wow, mate! <laughs> okay. So you,
2: you, just, you just cannot wait. I for this cannot to, wait. To I life.
1: literally... Uh, well, I can't, so I'm going to watch it beforehand. <laughs> anyway, but so that's just one of the advantages of being a TV reviewer. I can't help it. Okay. Plus, also this week, um, if you're just starting off on Netflix the first time, you might want to know that basically Netflix is a streaming service is suddenly going to open up Christmas for you this week. Oh, oh great! <laughs> Netflix is the one. Netflix, Netflix is the one. Christmas is ne- finally arrived. Thanks, Netflix. Yes, all the Christmas movies you can poke a stick at. El Camino Christmas about a young man seeking to meet the father he's never met at Christmas, starring Tim Allen and Vincent D'Onofrio. Uh, the American classic It's a Wonderful Life Fantastic is actually being film. released. James Stewart, go watch that. So My good. goodness. Scrooge, White, White Christmas, Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street, both versions, mm-hmm. and Elf—they're ah, Elf. all being released this week on Netflix. So you can get your Christmas on. And don't forget, in case you're, uh, you're not particularly uh, up for a Christmas film, yeah. the Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse is also <laughs> on. <laughs>
2: If you're tired of Christmas, it's guide it, to
1: the zombie apocalypse. Any more tinsel, just get a chainsaw instead. Okay. <laughs>
2: Before we get on to a Christmas themed movie, The Star, that's just opened at cinemas, uh, we mentioned at the start of the show we will be talking about Matt Damon's new film, Downsizing, later in the show. Stick around for that. Before we get there, though, here is a true or false statement about Matt Damon to get us in the Matt Damon season of things, like the spirit of things <laughs> of Matt Damon. Nothing says Christmas like Matt Damon. No. Now, Matt. Matt Damon travelled to Jordan to film the uh, external Mars scenes for the Ridley Scott-directed film The Martian. And while he was preparing for that, his role as Mark Watney in that film, uh, Matt Damon was particularly inspired by which film? So here it comes. Which of these is true? Was he inspired by Castaway, that Tom Hanks film? 2001, A Space Odyssey, the Stanley Kubrick-directed film. Or Touching the Void, an excellent
1: docudrama about real mountain climbers who struggled to survive. So he looked to some other film to get the sort of drive he needed to be marooned on Mars. Yeah,
2: that's right. So did Matt Damon, Did was he inspired by Castaway 2001 or Touching the Void when he was making The Martian? You will find out which one of those inspired him after we talk about this. We've finally hit December. There are only 21 sleeps to Christmas. Only 21. Only 21. 21, 21, yeah. Or thereabouts. Some people may not sleep the last one. (laughs) (laughs) Myself included. And what says Christmas more than eggnog? Christmas trees with spiders in them? Undies from grandma? Nope. It's a Christmas movie. Yes, we had to have our first one last week with The Man Who Invented Christmas. You can check out Mark's review of that at thebigpicturewebsite.com. And the second one for the season is The Star. The Star tells the story of Christmas from the perspective of the animals that end up surrounding the manger where baby Jesus lay. It also has a lot to say about how Mary and Joseph handled the whole episode as well. But the big star is Bo, a donkey who feels he's destined for better things and ends up having to just carry a pregnant girl cross-country to a hick town called Bethlehem, which might not be such a bad job after all.
3: Meet the ah! unlikely heroes behind the greatest story ever told. Herod is up to something. Mary needs help. We need to save her. You're in danger. You need to listen to what I'm about to say extremely carefully. Ah! Ah! Do you want a
4: belly rub?
2: So, Mark, what's it like having animals tell us the Christmas story? Well, it is definitely new for a start. I'll say it's a really inventive idea. I learnt that
1: animals talk. Uh, Had not uh, animated films across the history of time already told you that? Oh, I'm just saying now that it, it was just a bit of a surprise that they were talking back then. I thought right. it was a new thing. <laughs> I was a I modern it, thing. I thought it came in with Babe. <laughs> <laughs> but no, actually, 2,000 years ago, animals were talking to each other about their job prospects uh, and the sorts of things that they wanted to do in life, of which particularly is Bo and some other donkeys chatting about the fact that, you know, it wouldn't be good to carry other things rather than just work in mills and such. Well, I must and, have missed that chapter in the Gospel accounts <laughs> in the New that. Testament. Yeah, for anybody who is actually following this from a Christian perspective, it's not strictly the nativity story. No? It's <laughs> it's actually um, a kind of an imagined story about the animals and their back, uh, who all eventually gather around the manger. Uh, and so... I like how you co- said it's kind of imagined. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> Sorry, please keep going. Anyway, and human beings take a backseat in this story. Uh, there's no doubt. Though there are two main characters that you hear a lot of, so Mary and Joseph. In fact, To be honest, it's kind of everything that happened in the... 12 months or nine months before um, uh, we finally climax at the scene of the major um, I think it's fun I think um, it, it, I was actually quite surprised about the character Bo. Beau. Bos played by or voiced by Stephen Ewan uh, you might know him as Glenn Reeve from The Walking Dead oh yeah one of the main characters yeah, in the Walking Dead
2: is, a series that uh, is much more uh, much not, more attuned to an adult audience. Y- yes so I, was I was trying saying. to I was trying to say how big a difference there is between The Walking Dead and the star
1: well basically the star doesn't have zombies. Yeah. Okay, so that would be a... And there's many other differences. Yeah, many other differences. But that said, um, like, it's just a really likeable character. I thought we were going to look at a kind of a two-dimensional, you know just a smiley animal that learns a lesson, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but instead, is actually really kind of complex. He's got some great desires. He's always trying to, to better himself, and yet at the same time, he's aware of his own sort of shortcomings. And I think, honestly, um, this is just a an interesting way to get into the Christmas story, and we can always do with that.
2: Anytime nowadays that someone releases a new animated film, whether they like it or not, they're going to get compared with the likes of, uh, let's say, Disney Pixar, for example. Yeah. So, where does the star stack up in the scheme of say a movie that boys like, say, like Cars, or a movie that little girls tend to like, say, like Frozen? So, in terms of like big family favorite films, animated movies, say like Cars and Frozen, where would star? Where would the star fit? Where does it measure up? Yeah, you know, I think up?
1: one of the things that kids are going to pick up on this, and they've become sort of quite efficient. Of, of the animator world, you know, the sort of offerings we've had, uh, is that the animation itself is maybe a couple of grades back from Cars and Frozen. Um, I would not have been surprised if this animation style had more to do with straight-to-TV. Like, it's still uh, CGI, it's still computer-generated, it's still 3D, but, you know, there's less texture, less lighting effects, less things like that. I was really kind of surprised, because they'd obviously put, uh, you know, money into the script. It was a good idea. they put money into the actors. They're amazing people in the cast. Everyone yet, from
2: Oprah Winfrey to Mariah Carey is I know. in this, right?
1: There's heaps of people in there. Uh, Christopher Plummer, okay? Yeah. So there's everyone in there. there. But the animation seems to have lost, you know, some of the, the budget somewhere along the way, and that's a bit of a pity. Um, it's also a tiny bit laboured in its message. I feel like the, this is... um uh, maybe aimed at younger kids, basically, because they're saying things as clearly as they can over and over and over again about the significance of this birth or how, um, you know, worrying it might be for Mary, things like that. And the jokes, yeah, really are pitched at a much younger crowd.
2: But the message of the movie is laboured. So if that's, excuse the pun, given it's about Jesus' birth, but... If the message is laboured, then surely the message of the movie that they keep going on about is Jesus has come to save the world because that's, ha- that's what you talk about at Christmas.
1: Not really. What they do... What?
2: Hang on. It's a movie about the birth of Jesus. That's that's right. Like this, it's, That's the main event in it. Is it? It's not- the
1: main driver. That's okay. the main plot device. Yeah. But it's not actually what the film's about. Now, I, I want to be quick to say I'm not criticising the film. I think it's got a good, strong spiritual message. I just don't think it's one particularly about Jesus. Okay. Um, in fact, what no. it really is about is mm. uh, having high expectations that God doesn't deliver on. So Bo and and Joseph and other characters have high expectations, and they're all they're just almost shaking their fists, going, "Well, why aren't I getting what I want?" Uh, and in fact, what they discover in the end um, is that if they accept what God has for them, it will be even better. Okay. So that's not a bad thing for kids to learn. Mary he kind of gets it in the plot and she leads the way in accepting what God's got planned for her and it is even better than she could imagine. Um I just feel like it's a little bit of a pity because in the end, um Christmas is not about us, you know, getting even more than what we wanted from God. It's actually what we really, really need from God. It's a rescue mission and and the focus is a little off Jesus and onto the characters about, you know, them reaching their life goal, so to speak. The Star opened at cinemas last Thursday. It does star the vocal
2: stylings of everyone from Mariah Carey to Christopher Plummer, Oprah Winfrey and Stephen Yuen. And it's also rated a very family-friendly G. Matt Damon travelled to Jordan, Mark, to film external scenes for that film, The Martian, while preparing for that role... Which film particularly inspired him? This is going to be, as you're about to discover in a few seconds' time, a true or false, an answer to our true or false that we posed just before the star review.
1: Was the film that inspired him Castaway 2001 or Touching the Void? Now I've got to say Castaway. I mean, I'm really kind of disappointed they didn't have a volleyball somewhere in on Mars for him to talk to. But surely, being stuck on a planet, Castaway. Surely, the fact he
2: didn't have a volleyball would have given it away. The fact it wasn't Castaway, it wasn't 2001. Matt Damon was inspired by Touching the Void. That excellent... excellent. Excellent mountaineering docudrama. Ah. Damon and Ridley Scott were both obsessed with that
1: film about those trapped mountain climbers. That's true. Oh, well, there you go. Worried about telling a Christmas story that centers on Jesus but avoids the cliches, we get tips from a kids' ministry expert, plus Matt Damon on the way in downsizing. (laughs) Welcome
2: back. Christians love Christmas because it's one of those times you don't even have to find a reason to talk about Jesus Christ. It's there in the title, Christmas. And you can bet the churches across the nation will be inviting everyone to discover the joy in that particular story of Jesus' birth in the next few weeks. But the new film, The Star, that Mark talked about just before the break, is a reminder that the Christmas story is a story for all ages. So how do you ensure that your presentation isn't the verbal equivalent of, you know, like photocopying a picture of Mary just to be colored in or glued or stuck on with glitter or something? So for press record this week, we decided to consult the experts. Mark went off to chat to Sandy Galea from the Kids Ministry Support Group, KidsWise. KidsWise.
1: Sandy, thanks very much for being part of the show today. Now, as the creative director of KidsWise, you have a lot of experience of talking to kids at Christmas about the Christmas story. We're certain you're probably putting programs together right now. How do you make sure it doesn't just become a colouring-in exercise for kids?
4: When we're planning our... Christmas Eve and Christmas Day services, we plan it with every age in mind. So every person that comes through the door, we want to engage them with this wonderful good news. Uh, We now are at a size where we have specific services for specific types of families. So our 5pm service is pitched for our under fives and we have an impromptu retelling of the nativity story where kids come up on stage um, and retell the story. For our 7pm, it's really pitched for school age uh, this year we 're doing a um, a shadow uh, retelling a shadow box retelling of the Christmas story. So we try and engage every age um, and all throughout the service there 's songs that kids can sing there 's got glow sticks they 've got gift bags. Uh, we really make it a great time for every age and every child is engaged for the whole hour of the service.
1: <laughs> well, every year we see lots of creative stories coming along about Christmas. In fact, uh, a recent release for Hollywood uh, is this Star, and that's the animals around the manger and their perspective on the Christmas story. When you evaluate Christmas stories, maybe as tools or as you know stepping stones for yourself, how do you as a professional look at them? How do you work out what's worth keeping and what's not?
4: Open your Bibles. I always open my Bible and see what it is that is in Scripture. Kids learn a whole stack of stuff about the Christmas story that is not in Scripture. Kids think that Mary rode a donkey all the way to Bethlehem. The Bible doesn't say how she got there. They think that there are three kings, three wise men. They get that from Christmas cards. We know that there were three gifts, but we don't know how many wise men there were. So there's a whole stack of stuff the kids have learnt that we actually need to strip back and see exactly what the Bible says about what happened on that very first Christmas.
1: Okay, so we've got to do a bit of pruning to Christmas stories that sort of come along and be careful what we teach kids. Can we still be creative though? You don't want to turn it into a bare bones passage, do you?
4: No, no, no. Every year we come at the Christmas story from a different angle. So one year we looked at the fact that Uh, God has given us the greatest gift ever, a gift that never disappoints. So that particular year we wrote a a drama where we explored the difference between a wage and a gift. Uh, A couple of years ago we looked at Jesus being the light of the world and so we created a mini movie where kids actually explored the lights of Christmas focused in on the true light Um, and we looked at the, the whole theme of light through John's Gospel.
1: So the content has to stay the same, but the, the way you deliver it can be tailored to your audience to fire their imaginations and think more about it.
4: Yes, absolutely. Uh, same story, but there are many ways of coming at this story. It's like a, a, a multifaceted diamond when you look at it. This good news that God has come to earth uh, and uh, he chooses to live with us and we want to every year look at a shine up another... Side of that beautiful diamond for the kids.
1: Well, speaking of shiny things, Christmas is the season of shiny things. There are all sorts of presents and tinsel and reindeer and Santa's all out there. Um, is it all a bit of a dead loss, or is there anything that can be gained from the more popular conceptions of
4: Christmas? One of the things um, that uh, that I try to do for kids is actually reclaim Christmas back for us. So, yes, kids. Are overwhelmed with presence. So then we explore the idea of presence with them. Uh, one year we actually put a, a, our puppeteer in a big wheelie garbage bin. His understanding of Christmas was shaped by the rubbish that people threw away. And then we went from the puppet's view of Christmas, which was shaped by wrapping paper and tinsels and broken lights and all of these things, and then we took it back to Scripture and we reclaimed uh, this wonderful Christmas story. We also, a couple of years ago, we actually looked at the whole idea of food and chocolate and we actually retold the Christmas story uh, using chocolate. The the script went a little bit like this. Mary and Joseph travelled along a rocky road. Shepherds were watching their sheep and they were kinder surprised by some angels. Meanwhile, wise men were studying the Milky Way. It was a really fun way of retelling the Christmas story and lots of chocolates were consumed on that particular Christmas (laughs)
2: Woody Allen's one of those directors who's almost a household name. You don't have to have seen many or any of his films to have heard of him. You don't even have to like the guy, but you would have heard of Woody Allen. That's because he's made a career out of telling distinctly New York stories. Sure, he's been to countries like Spain and France and England and the like, but the majority of, I think he's made 45 or 50 films have been set in New York. And he's back this week with a new film called Wonder Wheel. And, yep, you guessed it, it's set in New York. It's set in the 1950s and summer in Coney Island, the beachside playground for overheated New Yorkers. As the temperature rises, so too do the tensions, and the steamy characters of Wonder Wheel have to decide whether or not lies can lead to lasting happiness.
1: Coney Island, 1950s. The beach,
2: the boardwalk. I work here on Bay 7.
3: Enter Carolina.
4: Excuse me, do you have Jenny's here? I'm Jenny.
3: I'm Humpty's daughter. Here's wife? Is he gonna be surprised? I'm marked. They're gonna kill me.
4: That's what you get when you marry a gangster. Uh, I gotta have a drink.
3: No, Humpty. You've been good. Oh, this,
2: you can't be out here right now. We're expecting lightning storms. Mark, I used to be a really, really, really big fan of Woody Allen. A little bit less so, uh, more recently, and I've only seen like a, like a handful of his last couple of movies and and the like. But I, I do know a fair bit about Woody Allen. But there are plenty of other people that don't. But um, as we just mentioned, a lot of his movies, most people would know, set in New York. So, look, like, what's different then about another Woody Allen movie set in New York?
1: Nothing. <laughs> Full stop. Okay. I've got to say, um, if you've never seen a Woody Allen film, here's a good starter. Just watch this and you'll pretty much seen a whole lot of them. it has got all the elements of Woody Allen. All the classic elements. He, he always begins with, you know, white credits on a black screen, backed by jazz music. I think he has done that in every single film yeah, of his, yeah. yes. Is one or two, maybe he does some cityscapes in the others, but it's pretty straightforward. He's got a hero narrating the story with a, a, an accent straight out of Brooklyn. And basically, um, he he plays... he. The films that he used to cast himself in, he now casts actors who are playing him. Yeah, who's okay. playing him this time? Well, he's being played by Justin Timberlake this time. Justin Timberlake, the Justin, pop singer. Actually, yeah, he's, he's a pretty good actor. He was in the social network yeah, a number yeah, of years yeah. ago. Yeah, and he does really well as this character called Mickey, this lifeguard. Mickey wants to be a writer, just like Woody Allen, is enthralled by drama, just, just like, like Woody, Woody Allen. Allen. Yeah, the whole thing, though, it, look. Give him his due. It's beautifully shot. Wonder Wheel is incredibly colourfully shot. Like, it's dominated by these oranges and yellows and that sort of stuff that really convey the summer. It's wonderfully scored. Woody Allen has a real ear for good jazz music and all sorts of things. And and this is another one with all of that. The art direction really brings the location. Coney Island in the 1950s alive. So that's Woody Allen. No one knows New York like him. There's also, though, some of the more familiar elements. There's a mob connection. There's... There's a love affair. There's a hero with an existential crisis. Mm. Uh, Basically, classic Woody Allen. Woody Allen has written and directed a film every
2: year. Again, I think for the past 40 or between 40 and 50 years. Amazingly prolific guy. Is he still using movies, do you think, to justify his own life choices, that does seem to be a strange element of Woody Allen, where he betrays a lot about what he seems to think in real life. I actually got to interview Woody Allen a number of years ago when I worked for Empire Magazine, and I remember him saying that the Woody Allen character up on screen, so whatever the the character that Woody Allen's playing in a particular movie, he said was an embellished, uh, a larger-than-life version of himself, but he still didn't seem to walk away from the fact that he's representing some of what he thinks up on screen. So with Wonder Wheel, are we getting more of Woody Allen to some extent.
1: Yeah, basically, uh, what's happening, uh, I don't know if uh, Woody Allen was actually being terribly honest when he's saying it was a large than life embellished version, because to be honest, watch Wonder Wheel and you'll see pretty much what he's been doing with his own life. Uh, Woody Allen's hero doesn't see love as a commitment, more a force of nature or fate, so he can't help being in love, can he? He can't help what he has to do, there's Woody Allen's view on life, uh, and interestingly though, Woody Allen's character, sorry, I mean Justin Timberlake's character, uh, is the only who doesn't suffer in the end um, and that's classic Woody Allen he just has to grieve but everybody else actually has the real pain
2: yeah and so it sounds like Wonder Wheel again
1: for a Woody Allen film is wonderfully short on morality yeah it does sound a bit like that but to be honest and I want to be fair here this is probably the most moral Woody Allen film I have seen in ages. Oh, yeah? Uh, literally, Wonder Wheel sets itself up as a morality play. Uh, and in fact, actually, it kind of feels like you're watching a stage production. I couldn't shake the idea. The entire time I'm watching this film, I'm going, this would make a good stage play. Actually, this would probably make a better stage play. The words are a little unrealistic, a little stilted, because the actors are trying to say profound things. The two main characters, Mickey and Ginny, Ginny being played by Kate Winslet, are lying about their lives in the hope that lying will somehow make things better. They're living in this fantasy world, this golden summer. They can't see the end coming, but the, everyone knows it will. And when it all falls apart, they're left worse than nothing, worse than they were before because they've traded the good, Good that they had for a fleeting great and an enduring bad that follows. Mm. You know, it's quite
2: and, a potent story.
1: Yeah, Woody Allen says basically it can't be helped; it's fate. But actually, personally, I think God says it can be helped. He's Woody Allen, who though doesn't believe in God, is actually hit on a real godlike storyline, which is that the world is in the process of running down and running after great. Things which are really fantasies, if they stuck with the reality that there is actually a better thing to wait for, they would actually be better off in the end. But no, they chase the fantasy and they fall apart.
2: The latest Woody Allen film, Wonder Wheel, does star Kate Winslet, Justin Timberlake, Jim Belushi and Juno Temple. It's rated PG for mild themes, sex scenes and coarse language and
1: it opens in cinemas it opens in cinemas this coming Thursday still to come the soundtrack to the latest beast from the animators who brought us Ice Age and the Peanuts movie and Matt Damon getting smaller and smaller for the big screen in downsizing welcome back to the show
2: Hey, a little bit earlier in the show, Mark talked about this new animated film, The Star. If you missed that review, shame on you, you should go back to the bigpicturewebsite.com, find the podcast of this edition, and listen to Mark's wrap-up of The Star, this new animated film. It is the season of animated films, because we're heading into school holidays. A new one coming out in a few weeks' time is called Ferdinand. On our show next week, we'll be joined by special guest reviewer Laura Bennett, who will give us all the detail on Ferdinand. But to take us to Ferdinand, we're now at the soundtrack part of this episode of The Big Picture, and and here is one of the sounds from the new film Ferdinand
3: Always out a place I knew I needed something new from me I never knew just what that was yeah finding something safe was just like trying to catch a bird in flight I knew that I
2: probably recognise that's the unmistakable sounds of Nick Jonas with his song Home that he specifically wrote for this new film Ferdinand uh, and of course I'm sure as you know and I know Mark definitely knows that Nick Jonas came to fame with his brothers Joe and Kevin as you know the Jonas Brothers. Brothers, there you go. The Jonas That's... Brothers catchy name for a band. <laughs> what are we going to call ourselves? The Jonas Brothers. Uh, they started out in 2007. They did a bunch of Disney movies and TV shows, put out some albums, but then in 2013, apparently they broke up well, at least as a band, for creative differences and so Nick Jonas went on and pursued a solo career uh, but also, apart from providing our songs to the soundtracks of movies like Ferdinand, which we'll be talking about on the show next week, Nick Jonas has also been in other movies, not just some Disney ones. He showed up as the voice of a cherub in night at the museum too and in a few weeks time actually on boxing day and we're going to talk about this in the big picture in the coming weeks he is going to appear in none other than jumanji welcome to the jungle that's out on boxing day nick jonas but before then you'll be hearing that song home in the new movie
1: ferdinand Christmas movies means Christmas is definitely almost here, which also means Boxing Day is close. It's become like a tradition for moviegoers to hit the big screen on the day after Christmas, and during the last few weeks, Ben and I will be previewing some of this year's Boxing Day releases. And one of them is Downsizing. Starring Matt Damon, Downsizing boasts an amazing story idea that could reveal something huge about the future of
0: humanity. Downsizing takes the pressure right off. Plus, you're really making a difference. You mean all that crap about saving the planet? Yeah. Downsizing is about saving yourself. We live like kings. Got best houses, best restaurants, cheesecake factory. Got three of them.
3: In Leisure Land, your $52,000 translates to $12.5 million to live
0: on for life. Wow. Do you understand that you will undergo the permanent and irreversible medical procedure commonly known as downsizing? And that your bodies will be approximately 0.0364% of their current mass and volume. Nervous? Uh, little.
2: <laughs> Mark, that uh, that trailer does give a pretty good indication of what downsizing is all about. So Matt Damon's playing this guy. Paul is a pretty much an everyday guy. You can tell that because he drives a station wagon around. Oh, yeah. They're everyday people. Classic everyday guy move. Uh, and Paul and, and uh, his wife, Audrey, played by Kristen Wiig, are considering getting this new procedure called downsizing. Uh, and downsizing is, as that trailer just suggested, uh, a process by way, you're, it's like cellular reduction, it's called, and it means people shrink to this tiny, tiny proportion of their normal body size and then go and live in these
1: tiny communities. So, like, everyone gets to be the size of a Star Wars figure.
2: Yeah, that's okay. right. But for real, and then you live in these little towns like called Leisureland and that sort of place where... And because of that
1: everything is cheaper
2: yeah that well, according to downsizing it is so you can go and buy like a diamond necklace um that's ethically sourced of course for about 85 bucks as opposed to what 85 thousand dollars or whatever it might be you can effectively uh, go and retire in this place live off your life savings and live like a king um in these new mini communities and uh, a lot of people are doing it um, and they're suggesting they're doing it so they can help save the planet and reduce their footprint across the place, as <laughs> well as live in a much more economically sound
1: environment for them. Okay, well, it sounds like a fantastic idea for a movie, to be honest, and a pretty clever way of, of getting about how we're relating to the world.
2: Mate, I reckon it's the best original movie idea of 2017, wow. hands down. Wow. Uh, it's from director Alexander Payne. He also co-wrote the script. He's a guy who made movies like About Schmidt and Sideways, which were these like critically acclaimed movies about crabby old blokes, but... To, uh, this film, Downsizing Alexander Payne's Idea, is just phenomenal. And you're right, it, it does uh, go, hit straight at how we relate to the world around us and raises all kinds of issues about shrinking the population and then, therefore, trying to shrink the impact on the climate. But out of that, you get everything discussed from should small people have the same rights as big people? What do they actually contribute to the economy? Aren't they kind of leeching off it? And they, should they pay the same amount of taxes, that kind of thing? If you go, you can go and live like a king, but they're still in inequality and injustice around you, and also your life, as um, Paul's goes on to turn out at one particular point, can be really quite boring and dull, just like your normal big life. There's apparently no crime here, but crime does exist, such as in the form of the next-door neighbour that Paul's character has, played by Oscar winner Christoph Waltz, this guy called Duchamp, who's basically a playboy gangster in this mini-community. And he reasons that, well, he can get away with whatever, because who's going to try to stop this, like, Star Wars-sized figurine guy (laughs) running around doing all kinds of bad stuff? Like, really, no one's going to care. He's so small. He's, like, out out of people's thoughts. All of these kind of things surface in downsizing. I'm enthusiastic about the film. It's coming on Boxing Day a lot of people are going to like it as an antidote to a lot of the bigger
1: films that sure. come out at that time of uh, year, the, the, After you've done all your great big sort of Christmas must-see Jumanji, must-see this, must-see that, yeah. then you're going to relax with the downsizing. Yeah, or,
2: you know, you don't want to go see Last Jedi. You don't want to, for some strange reason, go see Paddington 2, but <laughs> uh, you want to go see something more adult. Downsizing definitely offers that. I, I think, um, for, for me, as, as enthusiastic as I am, some of the downsides to it were the special effects are a little bit daggy. for Given the concept, I didn't think the special effects worked quite well. The storyline gets a bit repetitive. The finale is really quite forced, when you get there and there are a couple of scenes in the film that I think almost derailed the film were so unnecessary. There's one scene right towards the end where they drop the F bomb so many times it will almost make you want to leave the cinema if that's the kind of thing that offends you and yeah. it's just totally unnecessary. So downsizing
1: not an amazing film but still an amazing concept ri- with so many ideas. I hate it when they spoil stuff like that. But does shrinking actually do anything about the midget's personal problems? The,
2: the, the, so the tiny people know. Sorry. It's yeah.
1: that's a little wrong of me there. Yeah, that's
2: right. Let's, let's just politically say politically incorrect. Let's just say the tiny, the tiny people. And no, it doesn't. That's another interesting thing about about downsizing. One character actually admits that shrinking yourself isn't about saving the planet; it's about saving yourself. As in, just saving yourself for, so you can live a hedonistic, better life. Basically, you can shrink down, save your money, and therefore spend it on everything. So you get to really narrowly focus more on yourself than ever before. And I think downsizing represents
1: that quite strongly. Oh, wow. So is, is there any place for religion in a super small world?
2: Yeah, so all this sort of stuff that I listed up before about economy and rights, and that sort of thing shows up. Religion does as well, but doesn't uh, really get much of, much of a play in terms of what can help us with the future. There's this great character called Nyok Lan, who, uh, who is this Vietnamese activist who has shrunk against her will so she could basically be minimized as a threat. She's a Christian, and at various points in the film, uh says she wants to go and pray to Jesus. She's really active in helping people around her. She is so other people-centered. It's fantastic. There's a scene of her praying and singing in church. It's one of the most vibrant scenes of the film. But one of the biggest laughs at the preview that I was at came from when she suggested that Jesus had helped her do something. And out of all the different scenarios that were in downsizing and things that are being poked fun at and there was a slight bit of mockery going on in the film downsizing and i think that's why people laugh but it says a lot about what at least people in the audience i was with think about religion christianity and its place in the future and they thought it was basically just a laughing matter and so yeah downsizing doesn't treat it quite
1: so much as a laughing matter but it's definitely downsized as something that can help us into the future well, downsizing stars Matt Damon, Christoph Waltz, Hong Chow and Kristen Wiig. And it's rated M for sexual references, coarse language, drug use and an unnecessary scene about a room full of nude men. OK, so be aware of that. It opens nationally from December 26th, the most boxingest day of the year.
2: Now, speaking of Matt Damon, after the break, we are going to reveal the top 10 things you need to know about his breakthrough movie Good Will Hunting before we celebrate small on screen with the top five movie shrimps. Hey, thanks
1: for joining us. Before the break, Ben brought us up to speed on Downsizing, a Boxing Day release starring a miniature Matt Damon. Damon's been a big star for some time, best known for being amnesiac assassin Jason Bourne. But where Damon got his big break was with Goodwill Hunting, a celebrated drama he co wrote with childhood mate Ben Affleck, and they both starred in it. To celebrate the 20th anniversary of Goodwill Hunting, Big Picture regular Russ Matthews joined Ben in The Vault. This week for the 10 facts you need to know about Matt Damon's breakthrough movie. Oh, and we
0: gave him three minutes to rattle them off. All right. The first thing is, is interestingly enough, this is Matt Damon's favorite movie that he's done. As in... The, out of all the movies Matt Damon has made This is his favourite still, He still qualifies this As being his favourite film Interestingly enough And also it actually Started as an assignment For him when he went, was Attending Harvard It was supposed to it would Be a one act play But ended up becoming a script Sure okay That's fact number two So when it began life It began life as like A class assignment
2: But didn't he and Ben Affleck Co-write the script The
0: screenplay yeah. Right, so then they end up co-writing it together And interestingly enough, that moved to not only getting it made But then later on for them to actually win the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay And also Robin Williams won for Best Supporting Actor Sounds to me like fact number three, moving on to fact number four character of Sean, the Robin Williams character Was based on a combination of Matt Damon's mom and Ben Affleck's dad <laughs> who, Who's mom and dad? It's actually Matt Damon's mom Matt Damon's mom And Ben Affleck's dad All played by Robin Williams It was actually kind of brought together by Robin Williams Right. Awesome fact Fact number four Let's move on to five Alright Minnie Driver Who actually played The love interest Skylar, For Matt, the Matt Damon character Actually wasn't the first choice Actually the producers Didn't really like her Because they didn't think She was cute enough Are you even <laughs> able to say
2: that? She's not cute enough uh,
0: I Actually yeah I'm sure that they even said Other choice things But actually that they said That she wasn't cho- cute enough But Affleck and Damon Really fought for her And so she, that's how She ended up getting the role Alright that's fact number five We're up to six Gus Van Zandt Who's the director of the film He's actually directed 16 films But out of all of those films, this film still is the number one film in his career. It also has made more money than all of his other films combined.
2: Good Hunting, for Gus Van Sant, the director, has made more money single-handedly than
0: his other 15 films combined. All of them combined. Next fact. Gus Van Sant did the picture in Sean's office that's painted uh, back in the background that actually Matt Damon's character comments on. Cool painting, Gus Van Sant hanging in the office. Fact number eight we're up to. Unfortunately Robin Williams passed away a few years ago. The bench that they actually sat on, that he and Matt Damon sat on when they had the famous dialogue between the two of them has actually become a memorial in a way for Robin Williams. A memorial in Boston to Robin Williams. Fair enough. We're up to... i oh, have just got two to go. Fact number nine? yeah yep. Yeah, fact number nine. Now, this is one is an interesting one. It's probably one of the funniest scenes in the whole film. It's all ad-libbed, but it was one of those it was endearing scenes also for Robin Williams. It's this whole story about the flatulence issues of his wife when she went to bed at night. We should make clear the character his <laughs> wife had in the That's film, funny. not his own wife, right? I'm assuming so, but a, a, Again, he made the whole thing up. Matt Damon is just losing it because it is one of the funniest scenes in the film, but also it becomes one of the most endearing scenes in the film.
2: We're up to fact number 10. How can you top the flatulence of Robin Williams' character's
0: deceased wife and Matt Damon's laughter? Well, you know what? You really have to say that probably the line that everyone remembers and has become one of the most iconic lines from the film, how do you like them apples? That's like up there in cinema history for top quotes, how do
2: you like them apples?
0: Exactly. So I guess that's where way we'd be able to finish this top 10 list. How do you like them apples?
2: How do you like them apples indeed, Mark? That's such a fantastic line from that film. My goodness me. But it's uh, now time for the top five. So we've got to move on from Matt Damon. Well, well, kind of. Like the, the thinking behind this top five to finish off our uh, episode this week is because we did talk a fair bit in the show about Matt Damon, this new film, Downsizing, Miniaturizing, Shrinking Down in Size. Some people might refer to the size of Matt Damon in Downsizing as he's a bit of a shrimp. So... What better than to do the concoct <laughs> a top five shrimps list?
1: Oh, 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 now I'd just like to stop you there just for a second and say that speaking on behalf of all of those people who actually are uh, somewhat smaller. I mean, I know, radio listeners, that I'm actually probably sound six foot eight. Yeah, I was thinking seven foot. Yeah, I think kind of you. I'm actually a little bit smaller than that. And we <laughs> prefer vertically challenged.
2: Vertically challenged. Okay, yes. but that's too long. Top five vertically challenged. So instead, I've just gone for top five shrimps. And at number five. Bubba Gump Shrimp Company from oh. Forest Gump <laughs> 1994. That was a freebie,
3: that one. <laughs> Bubba you. Gump Shrimp
2: from a movie that I'm not a massive fan of, but I know loads and loads and loads and loads of people are that uh, Tom Hanks. A film where uh, a very unusual guy uh, becomes sort of the, the, the centerpiece almost of recent American history. Uh, and, and throughout the course of Forrest Gump, um, after he's gone off to the Vietnam War and he's uh, fought alongside another soldier called Bubba, who has dreams of opening his own shrimp company, he comes back home, Forrest, uh, and then opens up in honor of his mates, the Bubba Gump Shrimp Company. You know, I've
1: eaten bubblegum shrimp.
2: Well, that was another reason I was putting it on the list, is because then some bright spark, after the release of Forrest Gump and the massive success of it, created for real the Bubblegum Shrimp Company, which apparently has something like forty restaurants across the states. Which when one I, did you go to? I
1: was in Louisiana. And, and what, what did
2: you what did you have? A, a plate of Forrest?
1: I had uh, I had something. Shrimps. I don't know. I just said I want the shrimp. Thanks, and they said we don't have any. <laughs>
2: After no, the no. bubblegum shrimp coming back. The
1: like, they were out that
2: day. <laughs> now, this one is a little bit of a stretch, but try to go with me. So, in District 9, that great science fiction film set in South Africa in 2009 that was basically <laughs> oh, representing no. apartheid, oh, the no. the so the lead characters in the, in the film are aliens from another planet, and they're often called disparagingly prawns. They're yeah. referred to as prawns, and their face is kind of prawn-like. Shrimp-like, uh, if you will. See what I'm doing here? Yes. Um, and I actually was convinced that they were called shrimps. Like I distinctly remember, oh, there's this is South African accent that in the film keeps calling them shrimp, 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 being really like uh, unfriendly to these aliens in this great visual metaphor in District Nine for apartheid and racial division. But then going back and doing my research on District Nine, discovered oh no they're actually called prawns. So the reason I put it here on the list at, at number four basically is to remind me to do my own research as I'm putting together a top five <laughs> list. And then when I don't do my research, research that well to try to work out, well, how am I going to possibly link it? So, at number four... It's a
1: great lesson for all of us. It
2: is a great lesson (laughs) for all of us. At number four, then, on the top five movie shrimps of all time, the (coughs) prawns from District Nine. Three. Okay. Now, uh, you mentioned uh, at the start of this, Mark, your disclaimer about you being um, height challenged.
1: Vertically challenged. Vertically challenged. Uh, Please. That's right. It is offensive to refer to us as small.
2: As, as small. Um, and so I, But I don't know if it's re- offensive to refer to this actor as small because he is a small bloke and he's very distinct for it. An actor called Peter Dinklage, who now has become most famous. He's at number three, Peter Dinklage. He's become most famous for being in Game of Thrones. But before he was in Game of Thrones, he was in heaps and heaps of movies and is one of the hardest-working smaller actors in show business. Time Bandits. So he, was, he was not in Time Bandits. Oh. No, that was other small-statured actors, (laughs) Mark. But Peter Dinklage gets into my list of number three for the film that I think was his breakthrough role, and um, not surprisingly, he got loads of work out of it, a film from 2003 called The Station Agent, which is a fantastic indie film uh, set in New York, in kind of remote New York state, uh, about this small bloke, Finn, who sort of seems to have the weight of the world on his shoulders. He goes to this remote town to live in like an old station house, basically to remove himself from the world, but increasingly can't do that because all these, other characters effectively invade his world but what i liked about the station agent is even though it makes uh, a difference to the storyline that it's a small guy that you're focusing on and the issues that can come with that or the way the world treats him the fact that the movie and the characters in it don't treat him all that differently he's the one with the bigger chip on his shoulder than a lot of his friends do is really quite superb i think when it comes to the treatment of quote unquote shrimps Up on screen, and I believe the word shrimp does not appear in the film The Station Agent (laughs) because it's way more sensitive than that. But at number three on my shrimps list, Peter Dinklage for his great performance in the 2003 film The Station Agent. Big shout out to, but they're not getting on the list, the Oompa Loompas from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the Willy Wonka of Willy Wonka fame
1: who deserve some degree of, of uh, sympathy on our part on account of the fact they were all painted orange.
2: They're exactly right. They had that really bizarre shade of suntan going on. So the Oompa Loompas and the Hobbits also, you know, they get a bit of a shout-out. But, come on, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs from 1937. The Seven Dwarfs must Iconic. make it. Most iconic iconic shrimps are they not um I, I really like them for all kinds of reasons not only do they sing and dance and seem to enjoy the work they do even if it's just boring and laborious but they've all got these different personalities that are represented by their names that's pretty hilarious and they help like, a damsel can you, can, in distress can you list some there's uh there's a sleepy one
1: yeah, and, yeah uh, There's and Doc.
2: Is, is it bashful
1: yeah and there's gnarky and the, what you well, just he, made that up oh, oh, he's my favorite
2: but uh, come on, apart from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs as an animated film basically changing the course of animated movie history because it was one of the pioneering examples of that art form, the Seven Dwarfs have to make a top five list of movie shrinks But they, I'm sorry, guys. You just weren't good enough to meet number one, which is one. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids <laughs> from 1989 <laughs> before there was downsizing. There was Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And there were loads of movies in the 50s and 60s that shrunk people down, like Fantastic Voyage, which had a really good plot about sending scientists into a human body. But when people, I think, think about miniature on screen, think about shrimps, most people, I reckon, or maybe it's just me, will go to Honey, <laughs> I Shrunk the Kids, that cool Rick Moranis film from the 80s about most a scientist. People. <laughs> most people, including myself, about a scientist who shrinks down his family accidentally, shrinks the kids, as the title would suggest, and then the most of the film is... Uh, him trying to look for his tiny kids in the backyard as they have to uh, race through a forest of grass and, you know, try to get past big ants and the dog and that kind of thing. It's a pretty old
1: idea when you think about it. I mean, like, do you remember the the book series and, in fact, the TV series that followed The Borrowers? Yes. Yeah, and or or A Land of the Giants that was done in the 50s or 60s, but my goodness, Matt Damon... I don't care about downsizing so much anymore now.
2: I oh, know. Talk about a... Shrimp Tastic, <laughs> Honey. I shrunk the kids. It has to, has to come in at number one on the top five movie shrimps list.
0: Professor Wayne Zelinsky was hard at work on his new invention. This thing works. It'll put us right up there with the invention of electricity. That didn't quite work.
3: Did you get the machine to work? A few
0: more bucks to get out. Then something quite unexpected happened. Where are the kids? I haven't seen them since I left this morning. It shrunk the kids.
3: Nick, what happened?
0: It works. Diane, I got something real important to tell you. Are you
3: trying to tell me? The machine works? Do the kids know? Well, yeah, the kids know. That's great. It's not that great. Why? I shrunk the kids, and the Thompson kids too. They're about this big. Threw them out with the trash. Ah! What?
1: Yeah, no one's going to be angry about that. Okay, well, coming up next week, talk about a big Christmas release. It's Ferdinand the Bull. Olay! And the next Netflix thriller, The Sinner, blames it all on God. And our
2: favourite bear for Christmas, Paddington 2. Ah, Paddington 2. My goodness, am I looking forward to talking about that. But I won't be Paddington next week. I'm just going to be Ben McKerkin. And
1: I'll still be Mark Hadley. See you then.
0: The Big Picture is a Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.